Welcome to our Wednesday night teaching podcast, brought to you by Grace Point Community Church in Decula, Georgia. For more about our church, please visit yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. And now, this week's teaching. Okay, you all can turn to Psalm 50. Psalm 50. It's a kind of a different one compared to some of the things we've seen so far, which is good. A little bit of variety is a wonderful, wonderful thing. Um, we're going to read through it first, and really the, the theme of it is just that, that God is the judge. Uh, he's the judge of all things. He's the creator of all things, and we tend to view him that way. Uh, we typically view God in a lot of his other roles. We view him as creator. We view him as redeemer. As we're going through uh, Matthew's gospel, we're talking about him a lot as the king, the Messiah. Um, he's our healer. He's the giver of the Holy Spirit. We talk about all of those things much more frequently than we do the fact that he is a judge. But that's an essential part of who he is and his created order and uh, the role that he plays within it, the role that we do uh, in our submission to him. Uh, But that's an essential part of it. And it's something even Abraham recognized, which is interesting because it was never talked about at all. The first time you really see this is when Abraham is pleading for Sodom and Gomorrah. He's, he's wanting to save his nephew Lot. And he's going through this, this bantering back and forth with God. It sounds like a, you know, a, a toddler or a teenager trying to get some more out of their parents. You know, they just keep pushing the envelope one more time and one more time and one more time. And, and eventually Abraham gets to the point. He just says, will not the judge of all the earth do what is right? I mean, that was his great comfort, his great hope was that God is, but he referred to him as the judge of all the earth. Abraham recognized that about God's person and, and who he is. Asaph, the writer of this psalm, he was in charge of a lot of the music and different things. You see his name at, at some other places. Never a prominent person, but he's mentioned frequently around the temple. Um, but other psalmists refer to the Lord as the judge. And uh, you even see it in some of the psalms that we sing or, or say Sunday morning to begin worship that the Lord is the judge of all the earth. Uh, several of the prophets talked about, you know, the valley of judgment where God would bring all the nations and judge them. So it's a really prominent theme. And we're going to see in a little bit some more of that in the New Testament as well. Um, but let's go ahead and read through Psalm 50 and see what Asaph is telling us here about God as the judge. The mighty one, God, the Lord, speaks and summons the earth from the rising of the sun to its setting. Out of Zion, the perfection of beauty, God shines forth. Our God comes. He does not keep silence. Before him is a devouring fire. Around him, a mighty tempest. He calls to the heavens above and to the earth that he may judge his people. Gather to me, my faithful ones, who made a covenant with me by sacrifice. The heavens declare his righteousness, for God himself is judge. Isn't that kind of a terrifying picture of a judge, too? There's a lot of intimidation when you think of God. You know, he's not, you know, for most, it'd be intimidating enough standing before a human judge in their, you know, their black robe and up on their bench and all that stuff. They've got their gavel and... But you see God, and he calls the heavens above and the earth to judge his people. He's a devouring fire before him in a mighty tempest. That's, there's, there's serious judgment coming with him. Verse 7, hear, O my people, and I will speak. O Israel, I will testify against you. I am God, 
your God. Not for your sacrifices do I rebuke you. Your burnt offerings are continually before me. So keep in mind here, he's already mentioned who he's speaking to. He's speaking to people who have made a covenant with him by sacrifice. People he refers to as my people. And he says, your offerings are continually before me. In other words, you're my people, you're in covenant relationship with me, and your worship is always present. But there's something that's a problem. Verse 9, I will not accept a bull from your house or goats from your folds, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills, and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you, for the world and its fullness are mine. Do I eat the flesh of bulls or drink the blood of goats? Offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving and perform your vows to the Most High and call upon me in the day of trouble. I will deliver you and you shall glorify me. If you look there again in verses 14 and 15, we really see something that that Asaph comes back to and that's prominent here. God doesn't just want us to go by his name and worship him all the time. Remember some of the other things we've seen in the Old Testament that obedience is better than sacrifice, right? God would rather have us be godly than spend countless hours singing worship. He says, uh, offer to God a sacrifice of thanksgiving. And, and thanksgiving isn't just about your words, it's about your heart, the condition of your heart, having a heart of gratitude and thankfulness to God. And there are a lot of things that go into that. Perform your vows. Do what you've said. If you told God you're going to do something, you've committed something to God, do it. Follow through with it. To God, it's more important that you're grateful for him and who he is and that you do what you say than that you spend all the time around the altar. Because we can do all the religious rituals but not really be walking with God. And he says if we do that, then call upon him in the day of trouble and he'll deliver us and we'll glorify him. Verse 16, but to the wicked, God says, what right have you to recite my statutes or take my covenant on your lips? For you hate discipline and you cast my words behind you. If you see a thief, you're pleased with him if you keep, and you keep company with the adulterers. You give your mouth free reign for evil and your tongue frames deceit. You sit and speak against your brother. You slander your own mother's son. These things you have done and I have been silent. You thought that I was like yourself but now I rebuke you and lay the charge before you. And think about some of these things that God is strongly rebuking them for, showing up with a devouring fire before him. They don't like discipline. That's a problem. They don't pay attention to God's words. They cast his words behind them. They say, yeah, it doesn't really matter that much. They're pleased with wrongdoers. Give your mouth free reign for evil. Your tongue frames deceit. You speak against your brother, slander your own mother's son. Simple things, acting in love towards other people, especially those most dear to us that are the easiest ones at times to be frustrated and speak evil against. But the Lord rebukes him because he's the judge. But listen to how this this plane comes in for a landing, if you will. Mark this then, you who forget God lest I tear you apart and there be none to deliver. The one who offers thanksgiving as his sacrifice glorifies me. To one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. Think about that. The one who offers thanksgiving 
is the one who truly glorifies God. See, again, we, we've talked about worship a lot. You know, our worship isn't just the things that we sing, but he says, you're glorifying me if you offer thanksgiving and have a grateful heart towards him. The one who orders his way rightly will be shown the salvation of God. Now, again, typically we don't view God as a judge, but, but this is uh, something we have to do. We have to recognize that the Lord is the judge. He's the judge of all things and most crucially, the eternal judge that everyone's gonna stand before. The, the realities of a final judgment are pervasive throughout scripture and we have to recognize that. Um, he's the judge. He's the one who holds the standard. He is the standard. I mean, think about it, he determines right and wrong by his character. His very person, his very nature establishes right and wrong, the basis for what is uh, to be condemned and what is to be praised. It's not something that he decides, okay? God doesn't decide what is right and wrong. If he did, that would, that, that would open the door for God to do evil things and it be right just because he's God. It doesn't make something right because God does it. It makes it right because it's in accord with his nature, with his character, with his being. And God can't be anything other than himself. So everything he does is good and everything he does is holy and righteous and upright because that's who he is and who he is is what is good. He's also the one that holds us accountable to that standard. He punishes, he rewards. You know, sometimes we, um, in in some ways of trying to be politically correct uh, in terms of church things, we say things like, oh, God doesn't send anybody to hell, they send themselves. No, nobody, nobody would send themselves to hell. No, he absolutely does. If, if you look at some of the parables Jesus gives, he, he gathers people, he separates the, the righteous from the wicked, and he tells the wicked to depart into the place where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's what the judge does. He, he decides who's innocent and who is guilty. He, he rewards and blesses the innocent and he punishes the guilty. That's a part of being the judge and he does that. And we don't need to try to make excuses for God and, and try to, the, the other one is um, that, that I get where it's coming from, but when we say love the, uh, hate the sin, love the sinner, there are places where God says, I hate the wicked. He doesn't say I hate what the wicked do. He says, I hate the wicked. And we, we, we can't try to dance around the realities of righteousness and, and the weight and gravity of sin and what sin really is and what rebellion against God is because there's a judge who will judge those things. And we have to have a full picture and understanding of who God is. And a judge is a part of that. Granted, he exercises judgment in accord with love. Love is the most basic part of God's nature. But but we have to see God as who he is, not how we want to see him. And that's something why we've got to keep going back to the scriptures to fill in our picture of God, our understanding of God. And if we, we run into things that we think, well, I just can't view God as a judge. Well, we've got to work on our view of God then because that's who he is. That's a part of who he is that we have to recognize and hold to. Secondly, we need to proclaim that the Lord is judge. We can't just keep it a secret. You know, sometimes we think, well, you know, we don't really need to throw that out there. Um, 
but we've got to be real with people with who God is. And Jesus was, was very open that he's the judge. He didn't try to hold that back. He didn't try to hide that from anybody because that's a part of his nature. It's a part of his character and his being the judge and the realities of a final judgment, which are tied together, that's a crucial part of the gospel. How can you adequately share the gospel and say, well, you, you know, you're separated from God because of sin and you need to be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with him so that you can know him? Well, why? What if I don't? Well, there's a judgment. What do you mean a judgment? We've got to be able to explain that. Why does sin need to be forgiven? Because it's going to be punished if it's not. Even the New Testament is filled with this uh, thought uh, in Jesus' talking and other letters and presentations of the gospel and Acts. We're going to look at a few of these, again, just to show how pervasive this thought is throughout even the New Testament, because we like to say things like, well, God was a little more mean in the Old Testament, but he's all loving and goody in the New Testament. Uh, neither one of those are, are accurate. They're very, you know, mischaracterizing God. He's the same God from the beginning to the end. Um, he's always a God who deals with sin, but he's always a God who loves his creation and wants every bit of it redeemed, especially the people. But in John chapter 5, really from verses 21 to 47, Jesus goes on a, a, quite a long discourse about the judgment that was entrusted to him. But just these two spots, the father judges no one, but has given all judgment to the son. And he has given him authority to execute judgment because he is the son of man. So, and this is Jesus talking. He's explaining his relationship with the Father and what has transpired there. And he's clearly portraying himself as the one to whom all judgment has been entrusted to. In Acts 17, Paul's speaking to some uh, philosophers in Athens. These would be sort of the uh, descendants, if you will, of Aristotle and, and Plato and Socrates and the, these, you know, Athenian philosophers still sitting around just talking about talking, thinking about thinking, good things that we should do. But Paul speaks to them and he says, the times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed, and that would be appointed as judge. Of this, he's given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So when Paul presents the gospel to them, he never mentions Jesus by name, nor does he mention that he died for sin to be forgiven or anything like that. He says, you need to repent because God has set a day, a fixed day of judgment, and he's assured us of this by raising the judge from the dead. That is an adequate, spirit-inspired presentation of the gospel. We usually don't do it like that. Not that there, you know, there are clearly other ways, but here, he presents Jesus as the judge that they're all going to have to be accountable to, and he never even mentions forgiveness quite yet. Surely he got to there, but James chapter 5. This would be Jesus' brother, James. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. Do not grumble against one another, brothers, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing at the door. So James is encouraging them, hey, you better think about your life because the judge is right outside the door. He's close. His coming is at hand. And then I really find it interesting that both Peter and Paul use this same expression here. Uh, it kind of makes you think that some of these things, especially what Paul 
says to Timothy was already an established form of a creed or something that they were both familiar with and, and drawing on. Peter, speaking about disobedient people, he says, but they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. And then Paul says to Timothy, I charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead and by his appearing in his kingdom. And he goes on to give Timothy this charge. But notice the crucial place in both of their thoughts that Jesus is ready to judge the living and the dead. That was an established part of their thought process that Jesus is the judge. So when we are proclaiming the gospel and proclaiming Jesus as king and redeemer, we also need to proclaim him as the judge. Because the lost, those who don't know him, need to know that he's the judge. They need to know that judgment is coming. It doesn't make sense to proclaim salvation if they don't know why they need saved. And the reality is there's a judge who does condemn people to punishment for their sin. But thirdly for us, we need to accept that the Lord is judge and really let it influence our actions. Because often we can say something, but that doesn't mean we've really in, internalized this thought and are living in light of it. But we need to accept that he's the judge and let it influence our actions. Firstly, and some of the things we see here in the Psalm is to develop a heart of gratitude that leads to thanksgiving. Because again, we can't just say, well, I want a purpose to express thanks more because out of the overflow of the heart, the mouth speaks. We have the purpose to be more thankful and grateful for who God is and what he's done for us. And some, just some practical ways we can do that is number one, think about what you used to be before Jesus. And maybe if you grew up in a believing home, you don't have this terrible past to draw on and say, well, God saved me from all that. That's okay. Take some time and think about your, your biggest struggles, your biggest hangups, the biggest sins you've had to wrestle with in your life. And just kind of imagine where you would be if you were given to those things. And that will give you a, a pretty decent picture of what you would be without Jesus and you thank him with all of your heart that you're not that. You know, that, that's where I'm at. I, I grew up in a, a believing home, was raised in church. You know, I, I have my moments, but never anything, I guess, too, too terrible. But I know the things he's had to deal with in my heart. And I know, I know what I would be without him. And it, it's awful. Be a horrible human being. Um, and I'm just so thankful that, that he didn't let me become that. But that's what we need to do. We need to take time to think, to stop and think and just reflect on, God, what, you know, what would I be without you? What would there be without him? What would life be like without him and his goodness? And just meditate on some of those things, and I guarantee you it's going to lead you to giving thanks. And just saying, God, thank you so, so much for what you've done in my life. Secondly, order your ways rightly. Notice he says that at the end here, the one who offers thanksgiving as the sacrifice glorifies me and to the one who orders his way rightly, I will show the salvation of God. We have to intentionally order our way of life. Okay, you've got to order your way rightly. 
we can't just kind of wake up and, and go through life flying by the seat of our pants. That's not really a godly way of doing things. Sure, some people are going to be more spontaneous than others. Some people are going to be more regimented than others. But there has to be an order and an intentionality, a purpose to the way that we live life, to structuring our days, to structuring our weeks, our months, our years, our time with people, our time with God. Uh, he says the one who orders his way Think about, have you ever ordered your ways, let alone ordering them rightly? I don't, I don't think very many people order their ways wrongly. We just fail to order them. And we, we just kind of take whatever comes. But God says the one who orders his way rightly, he will show the salvation of God. And that goes back to what he was saying earlier about performing your vows, doing what you've said, making a plan, follow through with it, commit some things to God, order your way rightly, intentionally, and he'll show you the way of salvation. So um, just keep in mind that, that God is judge. Take some time to meditate on that. We can't let that thought escape us. This psalm draws great attention to it and some of the consequences that come when we don't live like there's a judge, but the blessings and the joys and the peace that comes when we do live in a way as if God was judge and we order our ways rightly and we live in light of what he's called us to, it's an amazing thing. And especially for those of us who are in Christ, because we know that we've been forgiven for our sin, we're, we don't stand in a place of condemnation. We won't have to be held accountable for our sin, and that's certainly no license to embrace it. But we can truly be at peace knowing one day we'll stand before God and hear the words, well done, and know that we're forgiven because of what Jesus has done for us. And if that's not enough to lead you towards some of that thanksgiving, I'm not sure what else would, but um, man, thank God for his forgiveness, that we don't have to stand before that judge, uncertain of how it's going to go, let alone fearful that it's not going to go well. Thanks for listening to our Wednesday night teaching podcast brought to you by Grace Point Community Church in Decula, Georgia. For more about our church, please visit yourgracepoint.com. That's yourgracepoint.com. Until next time, God bless you.